0: This party and its leading cadre and Erdogan being ever more on the fore became like the symbols and the representatives of some kind of success, integration, and participation of broad masses of the population. Right. You know, and I think this is structurally speaking the background of how Erdogan and the AKP can still mobilize so many people, even though. Uh, the crisis is so hot because people tend to believe his story that Turkey is being besieged. It's about to be destroyed and we have to mobilize everything that we have uh, to defend the the country. (music)
1: BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of The End of History. I'm Alex Hochili in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and today is Wednesday, the 10th of May, 2023. 2023 marks 100 years since the founding of the Turkish Republic. 2023 also sees a crucial election taking place. Recep Tayyip Erdogan has ruled Turkey for 20 years through a combination of social conservatism, developmentalist neoliberalism, and increasingly nationalism and authoritarianism. In this Sunday's parliamentary and presidential elections, Erdogan's rule is seriously threatened for the very first time, with high inflation biting into living standards. The Republican opposition leader, Kemal Kilic is polling neck and neck with Erdogan. Erdogan can be seen as one of the innovators of 21st century populism. He's also tightened his grip on power over his 20 years in office. As a consequence, much of liberal opinion within Turkey, but especially abroad, has been looking at this election and asking can you actually vote out an autocrat to talk us through this election i'm joined by alp caseriolu who's doing his phd in germany on erdoğan's akp his writing on turkey can be found in sidecar and in jacobin so in this interview we talked about who the main candidates are and what they propose where the akp draws its support from and what sustained its legitimacy what the basis is for Turkey's supposed culture war between conservative Islamic values and secular liberal ones, and the country's political economy and how Erdogan has managed the crisis over the past few years. We conclude with trying to place Erdogan in longer historical context. Does Erdogan represent a radical break in the Turkish Republic's history, or continuity with its past hundred years? Before the interview starts, let me just remind you that episodes like this are possible thanks to our subscribers at Patreon.com/Bungacast. If you like what you hear here, consider subscribing. Half of all our episodes come out on Patreon and are paywalled. Those are original episodes featuring our in-depth analyses of present history, extended interviews with guests, and much more. That's all at Patreon.com/Bungacast. And please do remember to rate and review Bungacast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be joined here by Alp Gasserioglu to talk about the Turkish election. Alp, welcome. And where are you calling us from?
0: Hi, thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I'm uh, calling in from Istanbul, uh, from from
1: Turkey, right from Turkey. And what's the mood there um, in terms of the election specifically?
0: Uh, I'd call it very tense, to be honest. everybody is like somewhere and I mean like really everybody those supporting Erdogan and uh, his party AKP and the de facto coalition parties of the AKP like the nationalists MHP them but also the opposition party supporters are in a situation of well in a very tense uh, situation and I would say both sides are like somewhere between hope and uh, like, it's a kind of dystopia, you know, mm-hmm. like, because, right. Yeah,
1: despair, maybe <laughs>
0: despair, maybe more than that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. So quite, yeah, quite kind of polarizing uh, emotions. You were also just briefly mentioning before we got on the call that um, that Istanbul has changed quite a lot um, over the past decade. I mean, I, I find the city fantastic. I went there four years ago. Um, but I, I imagine I experienced a rather different city to that which uh, you knew maybe in 2012 or something like that.
0: Yes, I mean, uh, especially since the June or Gizzi uprising or however you want to call it in 2013, we have a like very strong gentrification process going on. Uh, I mean, it's been here since the early AKP era, but uh, I mean, in the like let's say the historical and uh, by now the touristic centers of Istanbul, like uh, Istiklal or Taksim, there's a massive gentrification process going on here. And you will often hear like, let's say, a more mm, racist or anti-Arab form of debating the whole story because, I mean, obviously the Istiklal, the uh, main boulevard of Istanbul on the European side, Uh, is now very strongly dominated by tourism from Arabic countries. But I don't really think that this is the main thing, to be honest. Uh, But it's rather like what you would have in many European uh, capital cities or big metropolises that, uh, you know, just your historical centre or whatever has been deemed the centre or the centres of these cities uh, is being turned into a very touristic place. So, I mean, if the AKP is uh, going to go away and the opposition uh, will come to power, I, I think just the clientele, the let's say cultural clientele will change, but uh, mm. I think they will stick to the same neoliberal urbanization logics that has transformed the city. And this makes the city harder to live from my point of view, from my perspective
1: yeah i mean I, I was struck in istanbul by the way that changing from one neighborhood to another you get a massive cultural change in a way that i hadn't ever really experienced in any in, a, in any other city um, that you can that very conservative area that you get genuinely very culturally conservative areas and much more liberal ones and they're quite starkly different visibly different
0: Well, I mean, we we call Istanbul the small Turkey, you know. I mean, you have all of uh, Turkey in Istanbul, basically. I mean, if you take, for example, the childhood memories of my mother, she she grew up in Istanbul uh, in the fifties and sixties. So, I mean, I don't know, two million population or whatever. And today, Mm -hmm. I think it's officially already fourteen million, something like this. Right. And I mean, so it's this kind of. You know, late industrializing uh, experience Turkey uh, went through, which uh, led to a massive migration from the uh, uh, rural places to, I mean, uh, amongst others to Istanbul, but mostly to Istanbul. So you have basically everybody from Turkey here in Istanbul too, which is, on the other hand, uh, also let's say an advantage because you, because you can have a peek into the microcosm of the uh, all the differences that that do exist in turkey i'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure whether you would have that in a european capital city let's say right like.
1: right yeah no i think that i think that that sounds right to me uh, i wonder if you could characterize just in broad terms the election for us it's turkey's second presidential election since 2018 when the country switched from a parliamentary to a presidential system and now you've got these two coalitions um squaring off against each other you have erdogan's uh, people's Alliance and Kilichtarros nation alliance so is it uh, is it really the people okay. versus the nation how much can we read into into those terms
0: well I mean those in power always tend to try to legitimize themselves via yeah uh, you know invoking some notion of the popular or the national or mm. whatever so I mean that's I think basically what you got all over the world Um But I mean, what is now at stake is that, and I think everybody agrees on this, that it's the first time since the 20, over 20 years, by the way, by now, of AKP and Erdogan era in Turkey, that it looks like they might lose the popular vote. And I would not underestimate because you would, every now and then, you can read like comments on like, I don't know, Erdogan is a dictator, he can do whatever he wants, uh, so it's basically fascism kind of, but he's still relying on the popular vote. I mean, he's doing uh, frauds and he's uh, employing all the state machinery that he, he, he got to, you know, create an uneven playing field uh, up front to the elections, this time the same as it was like in all the elections before, uh, within the last 10 years at least. But still he, he looks upon the popular vote as legitimizing his rule. So the popular vote is still uh, very important and it looks like this is the first time he might lose so I mean we have, uh, we have dual elections, the, the presidency and the parliament. It's going to be on the same dates on on, Mon- on Sunday sorry uh, the 14th. And it looks like they could even lose both, I mean, parliamentary majority and the presidency. And that would be, or everybody hopes, let's put it that way, that could be a big change, let me put it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's a possibility that goes to a second round. How likely is that?
0: That depends on who you ask. If you ask me, I think it's highly likely to be honest. Uh, Second round, meaning that uh, if none of the candidates has more than 50% of the votes in presidential race, in the first round, uh, you'll have a second round where the one who gets most of the votes will be elected president. So we don't only have two two presidential candidates for the first round, but four, actually. Uh, I guess you never heard the third or the fourth one, maybe the third candidate, but I'm sure not really the fourth one. Uh, I mean, the details are maybe not so uh, important about the the names and so on of the third and the fourth presidential candidate. It's just uh, basically, uh, it's two opportunistic figures who think uh, even in such a situation as we are right now in Turkey, where it's about... or. Let's say many people think and uh, many politicians present it to be like a decision between autocracy, fascism, and democracy. You still have two presidential candidates that just put themselves out there for their own opportunistic private interests of getting, uh, you know, national coverage and uh, you know being angry at the main opposition why they didn't take them serious uh, and so on and these. The third and the fourth candidate, especially the third one, they will, if it comes to a second round, they will be the decisive factor for so, turning. So, who are
1: the, so before we turn to actually characterizing right. what Erdogan's pitch is and what Kilic Darolo's pitch is, who, who are these third and fourth uh, placed candidates? All
0: right. The third one is actually the pres, he was the presidential candidate of the opposition in 2018, 2018 Muharrem Inje. Uh, he is an ex Republican uh, from the Republican People's Party, which is headed by Kılıçdaroğlu, who is the main opposition presidential candidate today. And uh, he he got around, I think, thirty percent of the popular vote in uh, 2018 presidential race. And if you want my opinion, then he thought, okay, he's like the big maker, and he wants to overtake the Republican Party, and but he basically got cancelled by Kolicdarov and his team, and so now he's angry. Why don't you take me serious? Why don't you let me run as your presidential candidate? I will show you, and uh, take mm. basically take my revenge because in the best uh, polling, the best polls, he's uh, trending around eight percent of. The vote. So, I mean, he has absolutely no chance of getting into the second round. The fourth candidate is even less uh, important, if you ask me, Sinan Oan, Uh He's a right-wing extremist, basically uh, a split from the split of the Nationalist Party that is now in alliance uh, with Erdogan. Uh, but, the, but what may be the important point with Muharrem Inge, the third candidate, is uh, and he's trending better than Sinan Oğan, so let's say around four or five percent, uh, is still how do you explain these four, five, six, whatever percent that he's uh, going to get? I mean, so we have, as, as I said, like what everybody sees as a decisive election, uh, why would you vote for a presidential candidate who is going to, I mean, 100 percent going to fail, and uh, but at the same time and he's oppositional obviously he's against erdogan why would you not vote for the candidate in opposition that might win and end uh, erdogan's uh, rule and why would you you know take into uh risk of going into a second round and you never know what erdogan's gonna do in the two weeks i mean if there's a second round mm-hmm. it's going to be on the 28th of may which is two weeks after the Sunday. And the explanation basically, I would say, runs like this. If you have a look at who is today, or in the last polls, uh, public polls, uh, says he's he or she is going to vote for Muharrem It's basically young people, like between 18 and 22, mostly young people who are going to vote for the first time. And if you have a look at their uh, explanations, uh, I I think it's symptomatic for the legitimacy crisis of the political system as such, not only uh, of Erdogan. So they obviously complain of Erdogan as being a dictator, uh, as being uh, Islamist-oriented and so on. But in the opposition, they also do not see any hope. They think they're old men or old women, but mostly old men. And uh, there's nothing uh, that they can give to them. And this third candidate like he with his charismatic and like let's say kind of underdog and bully kind of you know way seems to present a charismatic a sympathetic actually somebody who is there to listen to your to your concerns so Mm -hmm. i think you can also read it in a positive way that the young people actually do feel if you want my opinion not the wrong feelings to be honest but you know still giving your vote to this guy is maybe not the best idea
1: Right. But there's no, it seems that there's no major programmatic differences between them. I mean, one's a dissident, it was a Republican still. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't have a, a radically different pitch. I wanted to ask what, what um, the Nation Alliance, uh, Kilic the main opposition's pitch is, because it's managed to pull together a whole array of different forces and parties in opposition to Erdogan. How has that come about? What is their main campaign message?
0: I mean, their main campaign message is, uh, as I said, basically, to bring back democracy in a country that has been sliding to uh, an authoritarian uh, dictatorship. I mean, that's basically, I would say, that's a broad, like, overarching theme, and then they have specific proposals to what they call a return to a parliamentary regime instead of what we have today, a presidential regime in a way basically that you don't have anywhere else in the world, not even in France, where the president has so much power also over the legislative and the judicative, uh, which Macron doesn't even have in France. Uh, So they would talk of this. They would talk in general lines about pluralism. I mean, not only democracy in the sense of how the state apparatuses are structured with each other so division of power and you know parliament as as a center of decision making and so on but the in general lines they would also talk about the relation towards society or how society should look like so it should be tolerant towards differences there should be plurality uh, and so on however if you look at it in detail and now come the more critical parts if you want my opinion you wouldn't see them talk too much on anything specific concerning mm. uh plurality or differences of lifestyles that's because basically most of the parties in this nation alliance main opposition bloc, how i call them uh, are themselves what basically right-wing conservative parties so you will never hear them uh, talk about lgbtqi plus identities for example I mean, the Republicans, maybe every now and then, but not even them, you would hear talking about the um, queer identities, Kurds, Alevis, like the, like let's say, classical foundational problems of the modern Turkish Republic, right? The exclusion or marginalization, at least, mm. of Kurdish and Alevi uh, identities. You would not hear them talk about these in specific really any really and you won't find them uh in the programmatic uh papers policy papers policy proposal papers whatever so i think there's one huge problem in in the idea of what exactly should democracy look like if you're going to democracy again Right. Uh, if you look at it from a political economy point of view, basically, I would say they're opting for uh, restoring the mostly classical neoliberal regime of accumulation, which is, I would say, also uh, a, a big problem. As you know, most of the uh, things that are happening now economically also have been a product of the neoliberal mode of accumulation uh, in Turkey. So, I mean, basically they would opt for, you know, your classical tenets of independent central bank uh, opting for price stability, which would mean now under circumstances of high inflation as we have today, uh, raising the interest uh, rates. I mean, there's a ton of problems with that. I guess you'll be well, we'll come on to that attention. in a second, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so basically... Just, you know, just to make a rough line, they, they want to return to a neoliberalism that, that's, you know, kind of motivated but by, by what Biden is, as an example, Biden is also trying to do in the U.S., so a developmentalist or strategic neoliberalism to, you know, climb up the ladder in the uh, international division of labor, advance towards high technology sectors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, take over the place. Actually, that's what what they've been writing, what China is doing now for Europe, so the manufacturing base of the world. That That's what's written in their policy papers. I doubt whether you can achieve this with, you know, your classical neoliberal methods of budget discipline and, uh, you know, Absence of state interventionism in the productive sphere. Uh, I'm, I'm doubtful whether you can achieve that. But uh, on the other hand, you won't see much talk about labor. I mean, labor in the sphere of production, especially. You would see the opposition, the main opposition bloc, Nation Alliance, talk a lot about, like, let's say, minimal redistributive mechanisms, as has been typical for uh, what you would call the post-Washington consensus uh, form of neoliberalism so uh, basically some very minimal kind of uh, support uh, if you are very low income and that's basically what you have for example in Germany where, where I come from uh, you would see them or hear them talk about that but not much about labor unions not much about uh, you know, labor rights uh, right to strike and organize for example
1: yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, this is, you have, you have obviously Erdogan who's been in place for 20 years, but the main CHP Republican led block is really the, a block of restoration, right? I mean, these are the people who used to run Turkey for a long time. Um, well, excluding, I guess, the military, which was, which is the other major force in which we should maybe talk about um, in just a bit. But this, this is, this would be, uh, um, I mean, it, it's, it seems like it's two kind of conservative blocks, different kind of shades of conservatism going up against one another. Is that Would that be a fair characterization? I would say yes, to be honest. I
0: mean, the Republicans, like the, the biggest opposition party, I think we can debate about them. I mean, many portray them as social democratic. I don't think so, to be honest. But I would believe that there's many honest people in the party or voting for the Republicans, the JP. That are left-leaning for sure, or social-democratic leaning. Uh, I'm sure about that, but the party in itself doesn't seem to me to be much in that direction. So, but it's—I mean, we, we we've seen it in, let's say, the elections 2015, when the main left party, the main, let's say, pro-Kurdish left party, the HDP, was in a big upswing. Uh, and it got around 13% of the popular vote in June 2015. So when there was a trend, like also a social and political trend towards the left, you began seeing like the JHP talk a bit more lefty, you know, like in cultural mm-hmm. terms, but also like talking about a- against poverty and stuff like this. So uh, I think that they're, they're like able to, you know, uh, swim in, in both directions, if, if yeah.
1: necessary. I mean, I guess that's, is is that it, that the main dividing line, um, as it's seen in this election, and, and probably over the longer term, that the main division between the CHP and AKP as the kind of, I guess, two major parties um, and their followers is a cultural one. I mean, is between... Um, the kind of secularism and a more conservative religious outlook. I mean, is that, that's basically it, that this is fought along primarily cultural lines?
0: I mean, that's the big debate, right? Uh, uh, Look, if you want my opinion, I'd say this, this kind of Kulturkampf, okay, Kulturkampf, whatever you want to call it, culture war, uh, was pretty much constructed, uh, you know, to be honest, like all these things didn't really, play a role in the 90s when, you know, headscarf, uh, wearing the headscarf in public was forbidden, basically, in universities, public institutions, uh, and so on. And it was the, made a big deal by the political Islamic parties back then, but they never got much more of the vote than 20 to 25%. So this whole Islamic culture against, you know, secular values, it was turned into a cultural war in the 2000s, and the Republican JHP under its old leader, uh, Denis Baikal, it uh, did actually fight a political struggle that was, sounded a lot like this. Uh, like, you know, they're bringing the Sharia, they're bringing Islamization, and we need to defend the republic against them. So on the other hand, you had the AKP, Uh, who was saying, you know, they are the old secular elite, they suppressed the values uh, of our people, and uh, we we have now come, you know, to bring the values of our people to the foreground uh, again, Mm. which is actually not... uh, You have the center right saying this since 70 years. Uh, I mean, like, since the first multi-party elections in 1950, the first... uh, you know, democrat party back then the democrat party has been voicing this criticism and you would see that right-wing conservative parties have been in government at least uh, in turkey since 1950 most of the time not so much the republicans by the way and uh, they have been instrumentalizing uh, I- islamic identities over the the entire this entire 70 basically Years. So it's kind of a constructed uh, mm. a culture war. But then again, so, okay, let's say, I, I would say it was constructed and there is not a real ontological, let's say, reality to it. But n- even this changed, to be honest, within the last uh, years as, you know, the change uh, change uh, of the leader of the Republican Party, JHP, from Dennis Baikal to, what is now Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and uh, the main opposition presidential candidate? Um, okay, so he's been lauded also by more liberal circles as the one chief of the Republicans who's been more uh, apprehensive, you know, or more understanding towards um, the cultural values or whatever of our uh, um, of the population and. Uh, Also, if you have a look at the other parties in the main opposition bloc, they, as you already mentioned, and we already talked about there, themselves more from the center-right or even, you know, just basically right traditions, uh, party traditions from Turkey, uh, they have been voicing conservatism and Islamic values and so on themselves for dozens of Mm. years. So this whole culture war kind of you know we are fighting against a secular elite that wants to suppress the islamic values it's it's not working anymore and they are not doing this by the way they're trying to frame a different kind of culture war they i mean erdogan the akp and his main ally MHP, they have now turned to a tactic of saying Again, something which is very classical in the repertoire of the center-right and not so much of political Islam in Turkey as such, the national will, in general, the national will. So we are representing the national will, they are representing global imperialism, by the way, this is the new trend. Ah, okay, yeah. And they want to stop Turkey from getting you know big and large and so on and uh, they want to destroy Turkey from within, especially using LGBTQI plus identities. I mean I've been hearing this in the last two, three weeks. You, you've been hearing this a lot in Turkey like they want to destroy family, they want to destroy the nation. So the focus is more on what is the nation and the national will. and this national will is supposedly, like, I went to Erdogan's meeting on, on, on Sunday here in Istanbul mm-hmm. uh, like a couple of days ago. And, I mean, he was really trying to create an aura of, you know, constant siege. We are under constant siege. Everybody is attacking us. And, I mean, Turkey is at the brink of destruction. I mean, this is like the aura that he's trying to create. And, right. But I will come and... Uh, you know, reconstitute Turkey and the opposition wants to destroy this Turkey. Not, he's not so much talking about headscarves or whatever anymore.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's amazing, you know, hearing this from, from outside and looking at it from afar. And I'm sure many listeners might feel similar that this sounds awfully familiar um, in terms of the rhetoric, the type of um, attempt to play off a, a sense of, you know, kind of a populist versus a technocratic um, vision for, for Turkey. And I, it seems that there's some truth to that. But, all, but at the same time, um, that, to a certain extent, obscures some of the things that are going on in Turkey. I, I, what strikes me you know, AKP have, you know, despite the kind of various anti-democratic measures that they've undertaken, um, anti-liberal measures they've undertaken, have managed to remain in power for 20 years and well. seem to have been able to challenge, channel a certain um, resentment from the provinces, from more conservative people and from the lower classes um, into um, supporting their political project, um, one which I suppose has um elements of welfareism but a lot of social mm. conservatism as well um so it, it i guess trying to map this out in class terms is can be can be a little bit tricky um, i wonder what you felt um in this recent rally i think i don't know how many people you thought were there i've read varying estimates maybe it's something like 700,000 people mm. turned out to this rally in istanbul which is impressive i mean after 20 years in power how was the akp able to mobilize so many people
0: are they so many? I mean, on the other hand, you know, 700,000... Okay, I mean, maybe for European standards, who would ever rally 700,000 people anymore? But, I mean, then again, how much percent of the voting population is it? So, I mean, the Israelis can sometimes be, you know, uh, leading to misconceptions.
1: But, okay, so I think the... I guess, sorry, just to interrupt, actually, because I, I think it's Turkish... Uh, the Turkish population more politically mobilized than most European countries. I mean, I know electoral turnouts have tended to be much higher than in in, in other countries. Um, I mean, certainly in Europe and across the West, I think, right? Um, So is that right that there's just a higher degree of political mobilization and therefore huge turnouts at rallies like this is maybe not so noteworthy?
0: No, I mean, it's still noteworthy, but I mean, the, the example is always Muharrem Inge, whom we've been talking about in 2018, when he did his Istanbul, uh, his Izmir uh, meeting, I think there was one and a half million, two million people over there. At the end right. of the day, right. he got 30% of the vote. That, that's what I meant with, it can lead to misconceptions. Other than that, it, it's for sure noteworthy. I mean, because in spite of all the crisis, to be honest, I mean, it's one of the worst economic crisis for the popular classes um, also for capital but i mean mostly for the popular classes that we're going through uh at the moment on top of the pandemic which was like very badly uh uh, managed i mean as similar as bad as in brazil to be honest Uh, if you look at excess mortality rates um still being able to get so many uh mobilize so many people and uh You know, if you look at the polls, they're like roughly still trending. AKP as a party is trending somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the vote. And Erdogan as presidential candidate is somewhere, let's say, between 40 and 45 uh, Mm. percent of the vote. Uh, That's for sure impressive. I mean, the short answer, how is he able to do that, is that, you know, he he was, I mean, let's take Erdogan himself and the AKP, they actually inherited, a, let's say, stabilization program of neoliberalism when they came into power in 2002. So everything was already going underway when they came to power. The huge transition crisis, economic transition crisis, and hegemonic transition crisis that went with this neoliberal stabilization program that was the the brunt of that was borne by the old parties of the 90s. Right. And so, so like, what sort of what sort of
1: measures are we talking about here that had been carried out, carried out in the 90s, which Erdogan then inherited at the end of the 90s and early 2000s? So it was this famous
0: transition to a strong economy program, uh, which means you know budget discipline, austerity. Uh, especially uh, relating to support and subsidy mechanisms for agriculture, in that case, to be specific, uh, independent central banking. So central banking is not allowed to finance state debt anymore, uh, but it's supposed to focus on price stability. It's also not anchoring on keeping a foreign exchange, for example, at the specific level, which was one of the main crisis mechanisms of the 90s. I mean, so if you skip the details and just, you know, name the structure, we would just call it regulatory or disciplinary neoliberalism, which had been on the way of being put in place uh, at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, with, with this huge, uh, you know, cur- currency uh, ex- uh, exchange and state debt and banking crisis, which led to a whole economy crisis. Uh, 2000, 2001, this was the background, and they had this technocratic, basically, uh, regime. And, uh, you know, but all the parties of the 90s, they, I mean, they just flew out of the parliament, right? I mean, just the Republicans uh, remained, and they were not in government when this whole, you know, transition debacle uh, happened. So they remained in parliament with 19% of the vote and AKP got, if I remember correctly, around 37% of the vote in the first elections, 2002. But they had an absolute majority in the parliament. So, I mean, they started in a very specific historical circumstances. All right. And so they they started with this transition to a more regulated, uh, let's say, less crisis prone form of neoliberalism. In the same time with the international, uh, you know, heydays of global neoliberalism, yeah. like the, the early 2000s, like everybody, like what, what you've been talking about was about like, okay, this is now the end of history. Like, okay, 90s were a crisis-ridden period of transitioning towards uh, neoliberalism. But even in Russia, they got it right. Even, I mean, remember those days, even Putin mm-hmm. was a nice guy back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's the evil of the world. And, um But, I mean, back then he was supposed to be much better than Yeltsin. Those days are over. So, I mean, so this was the international and, let's say, historical background. And the AKP now comes on top of it, uh, without going into too much details. was very, so they they copied or inherited also organizational mechanisms of the left, for example, right? Going into the neighborhoods, into the poor neighborhoods, going into the proletarian and subaltern neighborhoods. And giving the people, subaltern people, um, like a sense of, at at least some sense of participating in society, of being seen. You know, the left was not there anymore, you know, back then in 1980, 12 September 1980, we had the, by far, most brutal uh, military coup d'etat from above in Turkey, which ended the uh, import-substituted industrialization period in Turkey and uh, uh the, the the period in modern Turkey's history where the left was most strongest, also, yeah. you know, within the organized proletariat. So the left got destroyed and the vacuum was basically, let me put it that way, filled out by the rising political uh, Islamic movement. So organizationally speaking, the AKP was very well anchored uh, in the neighborhoods. Uh, uh, at, at times even at uh, our working places they implemented a regulated uh, neoliberalism that looked much more uh, 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 the, the stability of which looked much more secure than what we had in the 90s and then they implemented all these uh, you know post-Washington consensus proposals of uh, you know discretionary welfareism, like if you're uh you know of among the very marginal uh population income wise in the country then you uh you can uh, 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 get subsidies and so on this was instrumentalized it was not as uh, rules-based as you'd have it in germany for example but open to discretionary intervention by the political power. So what you would call patronage or clientelism mm-hmm. uh, was very strong in this. And then, so you had this party and this guy at the head of the party. Uh, by the way, he was not the like leading head, uh, at least not in uh, public awareness all the time. There were many others uh, within the AKP. It's just Erdogan left by now, to be honest. So he got like the big dictator, to be honest, at the end of the day. And But this party and its leading cadre and Erdogan being ever more on the fore became like the symbols and the representatives of some kind of success, integration, and participation of broad masses of the population. Right. You know? And I think this is... Structurally speaking, the background of how Erdogan and the AKP can still mobilize so many people, even though uh, the crisis is so hard, because people tend to believe his story that Turkey is being besieged, it's about to be destroyed, and we have to mobilize everything that we have uh, to defend the, the country. I mean, he's just—I mean, Erdogan. When I was at his meeting on Sunday, he was just—you uh, not so far. Off from calling up uh, for to, to arms, to be honest, you know, to defend mm. uh, the country, also with non-electoral means.
1: So there's been discussions of uh, over the past years of a supposed authoritarian turn. Um, within Erdogan's rule. I mean, has it been a turn or was it always present? Do you think? And how would you characterize this this authoritarianism? Actually, I just 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 to introduce a little thing that I heard, which I thought was so wrong that I have to give mention to it. I was listening to an interview with um, some supposed Turkey expert in a mainstream kind of platform, um, who call, who said that if, Tur- if Erdogan were to win this election, it would be the first win uh, globally anywhere. Uh, on a post-truth platform, which I'm sure is just untrue, um, <laughs> is just nonsense. Um, however much kind of um, outrageous propaganda there may have been from from Erdogan's camp, um, that strikes me as just just untrue. Well,
0: I'm I'm not sure about this last point, but uh, I mean your your first point with this. Okay, again a very big debate. Was it an authoritarian turn or authoritarian continuity? I tend to be in the middle position, to be honest. Um, but it depends on how you um, conceptualize the or understand the middle position. If you have a look at the years two thousand two to let's say roughly two thousand seven, when tensions ran very high and there was a, a a major clash, let's say between AKP and AKP allies and let's call them the older elites within the state. Uh, and there was also, you know, uh, uh, the older elites, they tried to close the AKP, you know, the party uh, in front of the constitutional court. And there was just one, uh, uh, just one judge was uh, responsible for the AKP not to be closed. So, I mean, it was a very close call. It was like 2007, 2008, around this. And then AKP, you know, countered with a major... Uh, judicial operation uh, against basically the entire nationalist elite, which they accused of coup plotting. And, uh, but I mean, they put everybody, they thought to be nationalist elite and opposition against them uh, into this one uh, a big, uh, you know, uh, a trial. Um, but if you have a look between 2002 and 2007 you would see politically, but also in uh, civil society, it was actually much more, uh, I mean, you could feel it was much more relaxed and much less authoritarian, uh, even then in comparison to certain timeframes in the 2000s. Erdogan was talking about, I mean, I remember those days when he was talking about, uh, when he was saying sorry to the Kurds the state did all these terrible things to you. I will solve the Kurdish question. I will solve the LED question. I will, uh, when he was asked in 2001, what he's going to do with gays and lesbians, he was saying, well, they're citizens too. They have their citizenship rights like everybody has too. In that case, discursively, he was more progressive, to be honest, in those days, mm-hmm. than what the main opposition uh, alliance is today. I think this is one of the main problems of from where we got now. Uh, how it started and how it's going, uh, but still. So maybe these. But then again, I would say the years 2002 to 2007 were like the five years way where they were on much on the defensive, you know. So right. they just had the electoral majority. That doesn't mean you have the majority within the state. So the state is composed of many non-elected, uh, uh, you know, personnel and apparatuses. In, I mean, police, army. Judiciary uh, and secret services being the major uh, state apparatuses, and they obviously didn't have the; they were not leading in these apparatuses. So,
1: they, and, and over the, the y- over the past year, since two thousand and seven, they've increasingly um, had an influence on the makeup of the state itself.
0: Oh yeah, it, basically we now know. Or, or I mean, already before that, to be honest, but. Uh, still, we, could, we can say they were more on the defensive than on the attack. So they still needed a very broad coalition of forces uh, behind them as a support against uh, their enemies within the state, including European Union, for example. I mean, the European Union was very positive towards the AKP. I mean, basically, the entire West was very positive uh, towards the AKP up until even 2013, where I think, I mean, after 2007, uh, you know, things got much more uh, visible or or clearer on what their ambitions uh, were, namely state capture, to be honest. And so I think these years, 2002 to 2007, they were necessarily on the defensive, uh, so it was some kind of, uh, whatever you want to call it interregnum or intermundium like an in-between words between the old regime and the new regime where none of the both was like really dominant or hegemonic so right. we had this right. historical situation of comparably liberal and democratic democratic couple of years uh, but that changed in the moment that they had the upper hand so at the end of the day, I would say there is some kind of continu- authoritarian continuity, but we should not underestimate uh, how successively and uh, I mean you know, we have been living through the through those times, and uh, each and every year or every two years or whatever big uh, 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 social or political. Uh, thing happened uh we thought okay now that's the most extreme and authoritarian thing we've ever seen just to be supplanted the next year by even more authoritarian Mm. uh, measures and interventions so you know we should not underestimate how successively this moves towards authoritarianism have uh, turned into something qualitatively new so in that respect i would say there have been breaking points or radicalization points. And you see that also in the change of the AKP as a party itself, like Erdogan becoming the big dictator, all the other leading figures of AKP have been gradually you know, leaving the AKP. Uh, the alliance that the AKP was constructing in society and state changed from, let's say, 2015 onwards towards Alliance with the nationalist camp against which they were radically opposed, uh, both were radically opposed to each other up until 2015, 2016. That changed with the change of stance of the AKP towards the so called Kurdish question, militarization mm-hmm. and securitization.
1: So, it, it, along be, with becoming more authoritarian and this kind of ratcheting up, it also has become more nationalist. Would you say that? Is that right? Yes then sure, you, you wouldn't have characterized AKP as a nationalist party in the 2000s, no. especially whereas today it's certainly clear, right? Um, and I mean, I, I, so after the t- 2016 attempted coup, there was obviously a kind of purge of the security forces and uh, replacement with more, um, I guess, AKP loyalists. Um, what would be the situation now if Erdogan loses? I mean, I've read people saying, you know, talking about it in similar terms, to what people spoke about uh, the US, you know, when Trump was defeated, and uh, most recently in Brazil with Bolsonaro being defeated and saying, well, you know, something similar going to happen. Um, And I've also read people saying, No, you know what, this is nonsense. This is just something that's being said outside the country, inside the country, no one really believes that there'll be any kind of contestation of the election. What's your opinion? And what does the military, the police and the judiciary do if Erdogan loses and potentially refuses to, to
0: leave office? you know what i have absolutely no idea to be honest uh, i think the best guarantee against something like this happening uh, would be a big margin of victory in the popular vote of the opposition not only the main opposition by the way we've just been talking about the main opposition but there's also left opposition bloc right. which is some trending somewhere between 10 and 13% of the vote so the bigger the margin of the popular vote going Uh, in favor of the opposition, I think the less inclined will anybody in the state be to, you know, act by, let's call it non-constitutional or non-parliamentary methods of intervening. However, if, you know, the differences, and that's been the case in, uh, actually also 2019 in the Istanbul election, first round, but also 2018 presidential election, 2017 referendum to presidential regime, it's been one or two percent. You know, referendum on presidential regime, I think it was 51 percent point something that there was a yes vote. Very close, yeah. We know there was massive fraud going on there. So the fraud guaranteed the yes vote, to be honest. 2018, 52%, 52%, I think, was the vote that Erdogan got in the first round. So also very close call. And we also know there was a lot of, it's difficult to quant, you know, quantify it, but there was uh, strong electoral fraud uh, in it. So if it's just 1% or 2%, Erdogan might be inclined to try, uh, you know, weaponizing the judiciary and weaponizing then the police again to stop uh, opposition on the streets. Uh, against uh, his decisions, uh, so basically, I think the the, the bigger the margin uh, of of a possible victory of the opposition, and I'm not sure whether that will happen, uh, to be honest, uh, because polling is uh, you know, uh, it, 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 I'm, they're differing so much. The polling companies, right. even they're those that got very reliable, uh, unreliable, yeah. even those that got very close to the election results in 2018, they diverge on their uh, on what they get, get as results, So I, I, I'm unsure whether that will happen. Um, so
1: yeah. I, can I just interrupt? Because I, I wonder whether this shift to a presidential system has it's obviously massively uh, increased Erdogan's power, but at the same time, it potentially undermines him um, because it's forced the opposition uh, into these kind of big coalitions, which it wouldn't have done in, in the case of a, of a normal parliamentary election. Um, and that might actually end up unseating Erdogan. Is that is that reading correct?
0: I mean, uh, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, to a certain degree, yes. Uh, and this is like the thesis put forward, to be honest, more by liberal uh, like analysts that they would say this is also on, the only way to defeat an autocrat like Erdogan. But then, I mean, we have been talking in this podcast, or, or, or I mean all time uh, over the whole uh, podcast, like what the what main opposition is composed of. So there is a question of, so it, is, is that going to be a real democratization or what kind of democratization mm-hmm. is going to come from it? Um and then again, yes, I mean, there's also some other interesting things going on because, you know, add-on replacing bureaucrats in the judiciary at will is also, or giving orders to the uh, to the bureaucracy at, at will, is also disturbing parts of the bureaucracy. I mean, this is this is obvious because it's also intervening in career making, for example. So we had, right. just, just to give you, a, uh, not an unimportant uh, example is the chief of the constitutional court he was actually supposed to retreat Uh, i mean he himself said he he wants to retreat and he wants to uh, go into pension retirement Uh, but then you know erdogan placed one of his own guys i mean very obviously one of his militant and partisan uh, uh, judges into the constitutional court by uh, uh, you know, speed in a in a very speedy fashion, which would normally never happen. And we know that he was putting a up pressure upon all the judges in the Constitutional Court to vote him as a new president of the Constitutional Court. And then something unexpected happened. The old uh, president of the Constitutional Court, he didn't retreat. He said, "Okay, wait, I I don't ret- I don't go into retirement." go into elections again and all i mean the majority of the judges in the constitution court including those that have been put there by erdogan in the last years voted for this guy again so because they were obviously disturbed by this militant partisan guy he has he he didn't go through all the career line as they as the senior judges did how can it be that this guy who has who has no idea who's young he's going to be our president so and similar, you know, uh, right. let's say bureaucratic grievances, so, however yeah, so you the, want to call
1: it. Yeah, the bureaucratic state prevails in the end, uh, yeah. <laughs> perhaps. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about just the economic situation because it's obviously quite central. And it's the first time that Erdogan has had to face, I think, a situation in which there's a real decline in living standards. Um, if you read the kind of economic... Uh, financial press uh, internationally over the past couple of years i think a lot of it's been like its response there to one has been no he can't do that can he um because he's in the face of inflation um has allowed the lira to continually devalue Um, tried to keep Turkey's growth going through cheap credit. So it's basically continually opted for for growth over, um, you know, kind of raising interest rate and trying to dampen down inflation. Uh, What's the situation now and what seems to be Erdogan's strategy economically and is it going to pay off? Uh, his economic strategy by now is
0: trying to save the day, to be honest. I mean he's been it's just focused on the election, I suppose, right now. By so. now, yes. I mean I, I don't think we should interpret his economic policies of the last like four or five years, where it's been like very obvious that he is and his economic policy management is diverting from what you could call a neoliberal orthodoxy or whatever you want to call it. Uh, So the last four to five years, I don't think you can analyze only by focusing on the elections. Basically, and very rough speaking, I'd say this whole idea of, you know, the the economic mainstream press, I think they get it wrong because, uh, you know, they they keep ignoring the interaction between politics and uh, economy because that's, you know, neoliberal theory making this cannot be this is just a bad thing and so on uh, but what Erdogan is uh, doing uh, is by keeping the interest rates uh, low he's basically saving small and medium enterprises that, that have been so heavily indebted also in partly in foreign exchange but also in foreign exchange who would and that sort of his and that's sort of his base is it That's kind of small and medium businesses or At least that's what he's calculating for. And there's a lot of people working in those small and medium enterprises. So basically, you know, it would have a a mass effect. I guess that's his calculation if many of them would go bankrupt. Then again, you know, we're we're talking about zombie firms in the USA reaching around 20% of all uh, companies. Uh, in the us uh, economy i mean those that don't even have enough profits to turn over their uh, indebtedness so i mean this is not something very specific to turkey the uh, specific thing in turkey is that the turkish turkey's capitalism is just in a semi peripheral state it's not the leading right. international economy it's just something and it, it has a lira part. not
1: the dollar so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean it, that's it, it.
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that's basically it uh, and he's like doing something that, that where there's political rationality uh, to it, uh, and he's not irrational. That would be my main uh, uh, point. So I mean, because that's you know, some guys come up and they say, okay, he's an Islamist. Islamists are <laughs> against the interest rate. I mean, okay, well, what I mean, how how should I debate <laughs> this? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing serious to to it. So he has a political rationality. And uh, they, they are actually even talking in a strategic way that this would foster uh, industrialization and export-oriented growth mechanisms um, in Turkey. And if you have a look at the, uh, at the data, you would see exports going up. I mean, you see GDP growth going up and you would even see the share of manufacturing as a share of GDP and as a share of exports going up. So, I mean, there is some truth to what they say. I mean, the major downside of it is, I mean, Turkish economy is still massively import dependent. So uh, you you have a massive balance of payment problem. So you have to finance uh, these massive imports. They're all done in, uh, most of them are done in dollars. Export is done stronger in euros. Uh, So in foreign exchange, foreign exchange so you have foreign exchange depreciation i mean depreciation of the turkish lira which leads to a higher import bill so you have all these major problems and at the end of the day for all the authoritarianism they do they are not going for strong state interventionism in the productive sphere so at the end of the day they remain neoliberal if you want my opinion because neoliberalism says no productive state intervention into the economy. Infrastructure maybe right. okay, or giving subsidies, tax rebates. Uh, I don't know, kind of these kind of stuff to push for a specific direction. Maybe that's what they are trying to do under Biden or the European Union's, you know, green economy and so on vision. But uh, you don't have state enterprises leading. The productive yeah. economy, as yeah. in China, that's that's neoliberal dogma, and they're sticking to it. I mean, they're not intervening into the uh, productive uh, sphere. So that's that's the main rationale behind this, what everybody in the mainstream press calls heterodox or irrational economic policies of the Adan regime. By now, it's it has really turned, uh, you know, saving the day. I, I lost uh cite, uh over how many you know this this month gas is for free for example you know right right i haven't yeah. just said just consume how much gas you want I energy so it's for free for households
1: uh i mean I, so I, I guess the, the real test here because i the last time we discussed turkey on this podcast um where we had a guest on to discuss turkey was back in 2018 and then we heard from our guest about how um, the price of onions had shot up. Um, I actually heard read recently that Kilicdarılo was held up an onion at a rally to kind of to, to right. demonstrate that you know how much of an onion had risen. Um, meat, you know, become unaffordable to the bottom twenty five percent of of uh, of the Turkish population. Something, like, and I presume that situation has has worsened. So, w- would you say that this election is a, in some way a test of? How much um especially the the kind of the bottom half of the Turkish population, which has tended to vote more heavily for the AKP than for other parties, um, whether the this economic situation, particularly in terms of um, cost of living, will um kind of loosen the AKP's hold on on the section of society. Um, or, or whether it's it's kind of um, more ideological appeals will will still will still hold out. Whether it's a question of just continuing to vote for the guy you know, or because of the appeal of um, uh, the AKP's Islamism or nationalism or whatever it might be.
0: I, I, I mean, that's it. I mean, we 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 live to see this, right? Whether the materiality of the economic crisis is strong enough to break the let's say, superstructural uh, identification and polarization mechanisms that Erdogan has constructed. I'll give you another example. When I was in the the, the, the metro uh, to go to Erdogan's uh, meeting, uh, I mean, it was packed. I mean, like you, you couldn't make a move, right? Um, the, the guys, I mean, everybody was going to the, the Erdogan's meeting and the guys next to me, they were like, they felt Uh, embattled and besieged but within this besieged mentality still very strong so they were like we're going to win anyway Uh, whole of Europe is looking upon us we have to show them how strong we are and we'll show them and we are very strong but I hope Erdogan will manage the economy once he wants to again so you could just see it directly manifest itself in an individual subject like these two tendencies of how far or how much can, um, however you want to call it, like the gratification that you get from the collective narcissism uh, constructed by this authoritarian populism under Erdogan, uh, how how strong or whether this is strong enough to balance against the like very economic materiality of uh, the, the breaking uh, a part of the living standard yeah. of the broad majority of the population.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, very good. Um, I just want to finish off then um, by reflecting on hundred years of the Turkish Republic, um, because it is quite, um, quite the quite the centenary, um, and especially as it coincides with with this election. At least you know, in terms of speaking of, of the year of twenty twenty three, uh, and I wonder what your um, take is on this. If Erdogan holds on, is that does that lead to a radical transformation eventually of, of the Turkish Republic, such that? Um, Maybe, in the future, the historians will look back and say actually the the Turkish Republic, as we knew it, the the Kemalist Republic ended at some point over the over twenty years of um, of the AKP and Erdogan's rule.
0: Uh, I don't think so, to be honest. i I think it was much more reasonable to debate these things like two thousand and ten to maybe fifteen whether they would push for a really more more stronger Islamic or Islamist republic, or on the one hand, or whether towards a much more liberal and democratic republic. So I think it was much more uh, right, or had mu- much, more much more object- at play,
1: I guess. At place,
0: yeah, much more at place to debate these things 2010 to 15. These days, I, I don't think so. To be honest, like, so we have 100 years of the republic and I, I see many things reproduce themselves that have been dominant in these 100 years. That's nationalism. I mean, everybody's talking about nationalism these days. I mean, Kemal Kalicraroğlu is talking about nationalism, right? He's standing and he's saying, are you the nationalists? Because of you, the Turkish lira is depreciating. I mean, that's the example that he's giving. The Turkish lira has been depreciating, by the way, the whole 100 years. There's nothing. I mean, the gravity is new, okay, but I mean, like the principle of, a, you know, semi-peripheral economy, you know, not being able to, you know, break through. The, the, there's nothing specific to the AKP to it, if you want my opinion. So, and he's like, you're depreciating the lira. You are no nationalist. I am the nationalist. I will bring a strong lira back. And things like this. Everybody's talking about nationalism. Uh, there is no real plan on how to solve the so-called Kurdish question. Okay, so also 100 years of Turkish Republic. Alevi, religious minority, but I mean still like what, 15 to 20% of the population. Some of them identify, self-identify as Islamic. Some of them don't. Uh, Obviously, their traditions and culture are quite different from the dominant Sunni, uh, Hanifi interpretation of Islam that we have. In, in Turkey, what are you gonna will you accept them as a religious community that is different? What is the majority of Turkey? Since a hundred years, there's no solution to this problem of democracy. To be honest, uh, in Turkey. So I mean, and then what what is your understanding of democracy? Is it like elect somebody every four or five years? And to be honest, that's what the opposition, the main opposition bloc is also saying, because otherwise there will be provocation. If you go on the streets, some gangsters will attack us. Please don't go on the street. Just go and go go to the ballot box and, and vote. I mean, that's a rationalization. But at the end of the day, Erdogan is also against, you know, popular mobilization of the people by their own organizations or by their own spontaneity in the streets or on the working place, and the main opposition is too. So is that your understanding of democracy? Which is, I would say, this is a structural authoritarianism. It's it's not an explicit one. It's like one that has a very narrow understanding of democracy and explains, I would say, or is one of the explanatory uh, factors in how explicit authoritarianism is always... You know, returning and ha- has its revival in Turkey, whether it's under secularist guys or under Islamic conservative, whatever guys. We still have this problem a hundred years. So, I, I, if you, I'm one of those who would say like there, there's uh, uh, history seems to you know repeat uh, itself. But if I may add something to it, I'm not that pessimist at the end of the day because you have something new this time around. And I would even say maybe that is new in the entire history of the modern uh, modern Turkey. But for sure, it's new in the history of the AKP era. We have a strong left bloc, you know, which also has a parliamentary wing. It's the third major uh, uh, electoral alliance. It's the uh, alliance for labor and freedom, uh, which is basically a, a, a strategic alliance of the Kurdish Uh, liberation movement and the socialist and uh, left movement it's trending at around 10 to 13% uh, Uh, we have been uh, making major I would say steps towards such an alliance it would not have been possible in this formation or in this way even 5 years ago Uh, so we will have a strong and this is my real hope we will have a strong left voice in parliament and I hope also on the streets uh, that will be the uh, gu- the guarantee for democratization of Turkey if it's going to happen.
1: Fantastic. That's a brilliant place to leave that help. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.